You're listening to the Loose Filter Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Sims. This is episode 114, How Technology Shapes Musical Thought. In this episode, co-host Dave Gant and I have a conversation about musical technologies and how they have influenced, shaped, and guided musical practice and ideas and expression uh, over the past few centuries. We start all the way back with musical notation and come right up through the present day. Along the way, we also wander off into a couple of interesting tangents about how the practices shaped by technology influence musical values, and then the values influence the culture, and about that interplay, and we have a little bit of discussion about institutional practice and music education and things like that. This is an episode rich with things to stimulate your listening and your responses to music and your thinking about music, and I think you'll enjoy it a great deal. I also had a lot of fun picking the interstitial music for you to enjoy at different points in the conversation that illustrates uh, the things that we're talking about in different ways. And you can see that music credited with uh, links to download it for yourself on the website where this particular episode is posted. As always, you can find more content online at loosefilter.com. And our podcast archive is on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. And you can subscribe through iTunes if that's your preference. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, uh, send us a line at loosefilter at gmail.com. want to talk about today technology and music how technology has always affected the development of music and the kinds of ideas that we make right in musical sound yeah technology has an effect on music the, the, the music has an effect on what technologies we build and that affects music and the, again so and it's and sort it's of like this interplay between the machines or devices or ideas we have to make music with and what music we make and it ping pongs back and forth sort of right and i i this conversation to me is important for a lot for a lay listener to have a non-musician listener because i think a lot of people at least i encounter this think that you know music is just pure inspiration and 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 you know uh i creativity just you exist purely in the life of the mind and you have these wonderful ideas and that's how music evolves and progresses and people have new ideas it's not really a good way to make music and and that's and it's (laughs) yeah it's insanely difficult it's like carl carl sagan hope the right thing hits me it's like carl sagan's recipe for you know an actual made from scratch apple pie is first create a universe no artists really create from zero but with music Music in particular, because we use devices other than if we're not using our body, if we're using any other our bodies to make sound, we use these devices. Yeah. And once you've done that, that's a technology. Yeah, it's a lot of people like will say, "Man, I really hate technology." And it's like, I see you drove a car here. Like technology means <laughs> anything we made, really. And it's like most people think of technology as anything that was invented after they were like fifteen, or that runs know? on a you know chip or something, yeah. or takes electricity. Maybe. But lots of things are technologies. Right, right. And even ideas can can be tech, like writing is yeah. a technology, linear writing and, and things like that. So <clears throat> that was the earliest music technology, right? Was let me use something other than my body, my voice mainly, to make sound that's yeah, expressive. Let, let, let in me some hit way. this. Or... Let, let me hit this. Or if I blow, 
It was probably wind instruments would be my guess, right? We know. I, I, I'm guessing percussion came first. People had to be. Well, we we don't first. have we don't have evidence. What we have the earliest evidence of is uh, flutes. Yeah. Which would be not natural because you would hear wind blow across grass or or reed plants or things and they you know you can hear yeah that, that's that like 9000 bc the, the, the earliest one they found that uh the oldest ones that i've seen dated are like forty thousand years old they're really quite old yeah they're found in caves are we certain they're flutes Is yeah there they're, they're, they're identifiable fragments they've analyzed the the distance of the tone holes and they're built on an aeolian scale even huh. so it, they would have made set patterns we recognized <laughs> yeah. you know um and and so that's you know as far back as we have evidence, of course, people were using their bodies before they had the technology of an instrument, and so music goes back. You know, yeah. Much well, I mean, we, we obviously sang before we spoke, but that's a whole different subject. So, so, to frame this conversation, it helps to remember that using anything other than your body to make music—that's technology. Mm-hmm. And using anything to preserve that music in any way either write it down or certainly record it. Those are all technologies. All of it, all of it, anything that's other than just you and me singing at each yeah. other, really, are technologies. Anytime music stays around, you know? <laughs> Especially anytime then. it's not, it's not just a, you know ephemeral, temporal thing. So the history of music then is, to a great degree, defined by the story of the technologies that it's the we, only way we can piece together the history is <laughs> it has to be some technology to preserve it for us yeah. yeah exactly so that's what we wanted to do in this conversation and that's why you this was your this conversation was your idea wasn't it I yeah think? i think so and that was and immediately i was like oh yeah that would be fun to look at and so we kind of have a timeline of notes that we developed loose and we're just timeline. a loose timeline like loose everything on the site i guess <clears throat> and we we may or may not go chronologically so you'll have to forgive us we'll, well try i figured we could start with some old stuff that we don't maybe don't necessarily think about technology and talk about how that changed things and then talk about the big the big change the big e the big electricity <laughs> electricity yeah specifically recording more yeah. than anything but yeah technology that uh, I had thought of, I guess I thought of it in, in, in a minute ago when we were talking about the conversation, which would be, you know, hitting two rocks together would probably be the very earliest music technology I could think of. But uh, notation, that was yeah. the one that sprung to my mind, was actually the transition from music as a totally aural, A-U, mm-hmm. and oral, O-R-A-L, tradition, um, <clears throat> to being able to write it down in some fashion such that you know, you could just get the piece of paper and and recreate some version of the piece of music. Yeah, and so therefore, like, that creates a piece of music because we didn't have pieces of music. If we can't write them down, we just have music happening, right? Right, and, like, that's an important kind of moment to consider mm-hmm. in the development of music, period. It went from something that was, like, you know, sunshine. I mean, it was there and then it wasn't, to being this completely ephemeral thing to uh, having some measure of object literal objectivity about it it became a thing when you can yeah. write it down we started moving music into the space of of a physical non-temporal object right yeah well, it's kind well, of a we, highfalutin way to say that so the first the first notation that we uh that we have is not what we 
know today, those of you who no. read music. So today, our music notation is pretty sophisticated. It's not comprehensive, but we can account for frequency, so pitches, yeah, the highness of the establish frequency. the very specific highness or lowness of sounds. We can account for uh, pace, so the the pulse that organizes the sound, how quickly or so slowly time. it goes. So time. We can account for duration or patterns, rhythms within that framework of time. To a degree, we can account for amplitude, volume. Yeah, that's we're probably the worst at that. <laughs> yeah, nonce. Well, I would say, and then actually all the other things about envelopes and attacks and things like that, the way sounds begin and yeah. sustain and end, like all the varieties that. But we, seriously, we only got like like what we have four six accent, volumes, like yeah, six <laughs> volumes and four accent marks, and so it's a it's a limited. It becomes very limited once you get out of system. the system. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. But but having said that, the earliest notation they were trying to solve, and we're talking like uh, 14th century, so yeah. this is pretty far back. They were trying to solve the problem of time. How can we all, you know, we can agree on a note. That's easier. But without me having to parrot every single pattern of this, you know, chant, let's say in the church, how can we write down the rhythmic pattern? That was the first challenge they wanted to try to solve, and they did, and they came up with something that we call mensural notation or measure. Uh, those are the know, shape ones, notation. right? Yeah. Which and I guess we still use shape. It's more like colored-in notes to indicate short duration, but, yeah, it's still shape-based pretty much. Yeah, it's still – oh, uh, absolutely. Um, but uh, that's fascinating to me because what you can – infer from that is what these these folks prioritized in terms of what they were interested in in musical sound so my guess is they they were not too interested in pitches combining pitches because they weren't looking for a way to write those down to develop any kind of complexity so that doesn't really dim oh so this they, this is before we even have pitches we've yeah, got menstrual notation oh. preceded sophisticated and standardized pitch notation yes huh. people developed various methods of writing pitches down sort of locally but um it's just kind of fascinating to me that it seems the first push and that's how the and of course immediately you have that technology then that's how music starts to be organized right and we see music through the the 15th and 16th centuries into the renaissance become more uh rhythmically complex than its pitch language becomes complex it seems like such a mundane dry kind of thing to point out but it's actually like that's the point that's the inception point because this is the point where the technology really starts influencing the kinds of ideas that yeah. people have because once you start writing ideas down you tend to think about the kinds of ideas that can be written exactly. down you, you, th you, th <laughs> you think using your words and you've, you've got a set of words now exactly yeah. right and we know that with children the larger vocabulary they have the more sophisticated the more thoughts they can nuance yeah. their <laughs> thoughts are yeah and this is where you vary for the very first time in human history at least uh, in the era of human history that we're talking about where we have records of this stuff it opened the path uh for the professional composer for somebody who could actually now because between notation and keyboards there was enough technological sophistication that somebody could become a specialist at, at, at making sounds making instructions for music yes because they could make sounds that were complicated enough that it needed a specialist for the very so this is like a seminal moment uh, a, a really fundamental, essential change in uh, human cultural history because it yeah. changed the role that music plays fundamentally. Mm -hmm.
So I, I think we should mention the proliferation of different kinds of instruments. Because um, we, we had, you know, pluck strings and bowed strings, but what we really added, we, we when we developed wind instruments to a, a really higher level, that happens like... It's the end, it's sort of the uh, end of the Baroque, like what? Yeah, like mid, mid to late seventeenth century and eighteenth century is when you see the first um, kind of uh, flowering of modern wind instruments. And I, I think it's important to mention because it's an aspect of sound that we didn't talk about with notation, and that's timbre. And that's one of the complex things that we are not good at writing down, like <laughs> at all. I don't know that we have much of a way to, other than to say this instrument plays that. Yeah, and that's the timbre, and it's uh, not. It's and not specific the, at all. It's just like yeah, this, but. I think when you get that diversity of wind instruments, because string instruments, they, they tend to sound the same. Like, it's the same kind of voice. You have a bass, you have a cello, vi violin, viola, but that's all kind of the same voice. But the point, as I'm saying, is that this is like kind of the first time that we really start thinking about timbre, I think, in, in yes. the Western music tradition. Well, wh what's interesting is that I mentioned the rise of the professional composer, right? So the professional composer would have been working for the people who could pay him. Mm -hmm. So he'd have been working for churches and rich people emperors and courts and things like that they didn't really start writing for wind instruments until we got the fancy we got the oboe and the transverse flute and the bassoon then started to be included in your standard instrumental ensemble uh, in churches and and by your your uh, uh, royalty and that's when composers start thinking about timbre yeah and start being specific really specific about what instrument they want to have play what line and uh, because that technology is available to them, now they're thinking about timbre. They started using all these new gadgets, and then we have, by the time you get out of the Baroque, what we consider, quote-unquote, the orchestra. Yeah, right. a rich well of sounds to choose from. Yeah, yeah. And so we, now you think about sound and that. <laughs> and the, yeah, and then you can look at, like, the next, what, couple hundred years. The, 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 as particularly the Romantic era, the, the 19th century, as a fascination with that technology of, that, of timbres. I just think that it, it's pretty obvious at this point that timbre is is what most listeners are looking for new <laughs> for novelty in i guess we kind of like we know the notes we like we kind of more right. want to change the sounds like that's that's where people seek the most novelty i think it's it's like it's primarily timbre then rhythm then the notes and, and that, that might have been where composers went off the rails in the early 1900s is they they just followed the wrong rabbit <laughs> well i mean they could write down notes with perfect accuracy so so that's what they did yeah, now yeah. okay so here's an in, that's an interesting point the technology maybe led them a little bit in the wrong direction i think that ha i personally think that happens in the uh in the early 20th century is the is the obsession with what we can do we can write down perfectly and it's like it, it's like because what we could write down with perfect accuracy more or less was frequency frequency became 
what serious musicians were concerned with. So, so when you're coming out of the end of the Romantic period, everybody's like, well, what, what else can we do with these notes? It's more of this obsession with notes, like what pitches right, are we going to put tonality together? Had, How are we going to arrange pitches? Let's, tonality let's, had kind of broken under its own complexity. Let's just take complexity. all the pitches and we'll put them in different orders and right. then keep everybody on their toes that way. And that's not really what I think people are looking for in, in when they want novelty in music. You and know? it was an unfortunate time to make that mistake, too, because the world of timbre really exploded in the early 20th century with electronic and recording technology yeah and then of course on its heels computer technology so you know timbre became hugely fluid and Uh, and and so right when these composers were kind of diving ever deeper into the well (laughs) of the technology of pitch and notation (laughs) the culture was going (laughs) shiny new timbres shiny new sounds That's where they, uh, perhaps unexpectedly to them, um, moved away from the culture mm-hmm. pr- pretty decisively. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that was their intent at all. No, um, no. I, and I want to say, Era, that's not wasn't. a fair way to characterize it because this is a lot of really brilliant music that I love and respect tremendously. Yeah. So I don't mean to sound dismissive at all. But in terms of staying connected to your culture, it would have I think it would be fair to characterize it as an error in that sense. That's what I mean. We lost this this taste for this sort of more complicated music. There was this whole other thing that rushed in to fill that space because of electricity. So I, I see the big sea change that happens after the you know industrial revolution, after the te- technological revolution. It's a change in the way we capture music, produce sound, and um, transmit music. And I, I think those are the big three things okay, that change. Okay, so, so before electricity... And we do have some recording before electricity. Right. That, that's, that is, but it wasn't like... It's more like proof of concept. Yeah, because like you, you, you can gather can around this. the Victrola, but you, you, know, you have to play xylophone rags is the only thing that's going to come through on that. Right, because you had cones <laughs> to funnel the sound down to vibrate a needle. You know? yeah. so, but it did show that vibration could be encoded mm-hmm. onto a medium. So conceptually, the 1800s with sound recording uh, you know, from about, what, 18... 18- 60s or so forward yeah well uh, when, when was know, that the, it was we, really important the, the the what is it the phonautograph that's the thing just it could show the waves and yeah. like you could write you couldn't play it back you couldn't do anything like that but they've recreated could, some of but them at least actually, it's yeah. like we can we can make <laughs> we can record this and that's you know, what i mean what it's, it's proof of concept yeah. so that that idea we're talking about mid 19th century really is when it starts to come into the water culturally that you can record sound mm-hmm. that you can capture it in a literal way so so okay so what were the three things you said that changed it was capture capture production 
and transmission. And transmission. Not uh, that's probably not the right order to put them in, but <laughs> well, but before before electricity capture was just notation. Yeah, which we talked was, about. And which transmission is, was also just notation. And well, transmission was the physical act of playing it, right? But well, you, I mean, but you, you had could, to be you in could hearing make copies of of something you wrote and then send that somewhere else, and then they can recreate that. Okay, music. so that's transmission. So that's a form of transmission, I think. And I think that's that's hugely important for the development of music. That's why. But I'm also thinking about transmission, like literally when you're playing the music, you're transmitting it to your audience. Yeah. I mean, that you're, you're conveying the music to your audience in a literal, phenomenal sense yes. in the moment. But you had to be in hearing distance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had to be totally local to that sound yeah. source to be able to get the transmission. Okay, so how did electricity change those things? How did it change capture? Well, amplification and, and the loudspeaker are, are sort of like, that's inherent. Those things have to be present. But basically, we turn we and we did a whole uh, yeah we did it we did on, on sound this, to so, signal so we, everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about because everyone is listening because every everybody listens diligently. raptly to every single episode. We should say as an aside, we should we should uh, promote our 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 own podcast a little bit. If you haven't listened to that episode, we we did a whole conversation on how sound uh, goes from to a phenomenon to a signal and then and back I talk to really quickly and excitedly. <laughs> but it's it was a good we had fun making it anyway so we figure out how to do that turn yeah. turn turn pressure waves sound waves into, into electricity. electricity and then we can we can put it through a loudspeaker which is means we can actually spread a small amount of people further you know because like before if you wanted to fill a room we fill a concert hall you needed to have a room full of instruments Okay, with a loudspeaker, you don't need that. You don't need well, and you if got, you, you get four to, people, you can fill the whole room. You're right. Being able to project your sound mm-hmm. over much larger meant that ten people now could play to a room of two thousand people. Yeah. Whereas before, it would take two hundred people. So this is not. This is without play. even like just. I'm. I'm just touching on microphones, loudspeakers, and I'm not say, changing the sound we're making. Yeah. But what we can do with the sound once it's made. Yeah. And and that makes recording much better because now we can capture a much um, more accurate frequency range, spectrum. So we've got loudspeakers, we've got microphones, we can capture sound electronically more accurately. And the next big step after that, I'd say, would be uh, magnetic tape. Is it worth visiting a little bit? What were the impacts, like, on musical, you know, uh, output and works of the microphone? I mean, I think that's a pretty big one, right? Because until we had things like, like the microphone, you didn't have popular singers, that were popular beyond their their yeah, town. Yeah, everybody was regional. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everybody was regional, and it was because if if you weren't an operatic singer, if you weren't trained mm-hmm. in that technique, you could only sing for about you know whatever a few dozen people yeah. because that's all who could. You hear can sing you. in a bar. You can sing a, you know exactly in church, but that's about it. So no matter how many people actually in your town loved your singing, you could only play halls of 30 to 50 people right but as soon as we get a microphone the definition of famous used to be a much smaller thing right it did. <laughs> but but who could 
put their music out there for larger consumption changed, I guess is my, my larger point. So the folk music and the homemade music became what, you know, started to become what we now call popular music. Yeah. Um, and the microphone was like a big part of that. And, and singers right away could do things expressively. They could use the voice as an instrument in ways that they hadn't been able to before. I'm thinking like blues priestesses. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, you're sp- saying like in ways that they can't, couldn't before, but I think actually what enabled us is to go back to singing like most people sang throughout history, which okay, is yeah, not yeah. in the operatic style. That's what style. I mean. I should say that that they couldn't do before four large numbers yeah. of people. Sorry, I left out that part. Yes. So the microphone, this the newfangled technology actually let us reclaim. It enabled a more naturalistic singing style. Right. Yeah. yeah. And one that was more um, intuitively expressive. Yeah. There's if you're if you need to fill a hall with sound, there's there's like only so many ways of using your voice that can do that. You know, unless you have a technology yeah. that has the power of many men to lift <laughs> <Yeah>. your voice <laughs> very far. Because in the in in my world, you know that that I live in day to day in my work, the concert music, the classical music world, uh, particularly from the vocal side, the vocalist side, they're so averse to the microphone and to what you can do with it that it is. Um, it's interesting to me that the cultural changes not just in the music itself, but the behaviors of people in in the role that music played in their life, how they can listen to their music, where they listen to their music, what they use it for, uh, all these kind of massive changes that, that occurred through the 20th and into the 21st century. It's still going. Yeah. Because our music technology is still evolving. A lot of it has its genesis with the microphone. Turning it into electricity. Turning it yeah. into electricity so you could record it and you could amplify it you can amplify it, and also you could send it through the air you've got radio now which interestingly enough when radio started until magnetic tape that was all live which i, I just recently how found many that. years was that all pretty so pretty decades long. yeah decades. several we, decades we had radio like through the 30s and when was magnetic tape invented let me look i'm gonna look that up while uh, we're talking. like 20s and 30s uh, like er, early magnetic tape existed it was steel um, which made it dangerous and really hard to work with. It, it, they, they had to mount it in a cage to keep it from once the tape broke because that could slice your fingers off or, yeah. or worse. Yeah, it wasn't until after World War II. Yeah, it was invented in 1928 initially. Yeah, well, you, you know the story, right? That there was a cigarette paper manufacturer was putting uh, cheap gold leaf on the paper to make it look like more expensive cigarettes. He was also an audio enthusiast, so he figured out he could make tape out of that that was really flexible and easy no i don't know that story no kidding i I learned that from a show that you recommended to me was it the audio that audio documentary from radio new zealand oh these hopeful machines it was a a show that uh radio new zealand sponsored we did a post on it uh it's it's a phenomenal six-part history of electronic and computer music uh in its development over the last you know roughly 100 years yeah really well done these hopeful machines to go listen to it anyway but yeah the magnetic tape allowed it allowed us to record something and then broadcast it on radio radio actually used to be a live medium because like record analog formats until you had real like tape the, the quality was too low after you turn it into radio waves so all all shows were done live so now you could like record something and distribute it much more broadly so all the radio really before and through world war ii that all had to be created on the spot. Yeah, which is, and it's kind of a cool That's idea crazy. to real, because like at, at that time, anytime you heard music on the radio, that was being played right now and just being distributed 
right through radio right. waves yeah. but only it was actually happening radio. live yeah only live radio no kidding um so yeah i think it was like bing crosby was the first one his radio show was he was the uh, first like one to really push the tape medium so he could record them and then and then play them back so yeah that's a big change in transmission once you've got radio and once once you can make a single you know you can you can have a, a song and then distribute that through radio. That changes our relationship with songs a lot, I think. Well, and that coupled with 1921, if I'm recalling correctly, is the Victrola, the first consumer-priced phonograph. So by the by the end of the 20s, the phonograph has a pretty high saturation in American households. So radio and records were reinforcing each other early on. But the interplay of those things, it creates a non-local populist folk, mu- music folk music a non-local yeah. folk music culture yeah, yeah that we come to call popular music little yeah. p popular music broadly speaking i'm not sure that the tectonic nature of that change has been fully appreciated which makes sense because when you're talking about within the last hundred years it takes us a long time to understand changes this fundamental mm-hmm. i think because you don't get enough sort of distance and uh uh, perspective um, but collectively I think human beings like culturally like we don't notice these big cultural shifts until well after that right. kind of, oh and we're different now yeah uh, uh, so anyway continuing continuing on and the other thing I just I, I don't oh, sorry, sorry don't want to get stuck on magnetic tape here but um, the other big change that that technology enabled was multi-tracking because like when you've got the really early recordings it's it's on a physical media everybody's got to yell into a cone then you get microphones and you can amplify it so you can you can have each individual player uh or singer record but with multi-tracking you can with magnetic tape because you can now edit that because before you put it on a physical a hard physical medium you can't make changes you can't go cut in something there right because when you record you can't dub when you would record onto a cylinder or a a disc it's Mm -hmm. it's engraving the yeah so even then it was it was information uh, you can't go back and right over it yeah yeah Yeah. there was no editing you recorded an event whereas once you've got tape you can edit things and you can overdub and you can create a production i think that's when production starts so that was the first time we really had the ability to create um on a recording something that can't exist or doesn't exist right in real that's a that's as actual sounding music in the world all prior to that all recordings that we had were recreating a live performance right so if we had a band and we were going to do mm-hmm. a recording not only did we all have to sit in the room we all had to get it right in one take at the same time well and it's 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 recording is just a a copy of the live performance right whereas snapshot if you will and once you snapshot. start editing the recording is something you're making in and of itself. It's and not just a capture of a performance. It's a thing. It's a work. And that's a making. new kind of composition of, of, of musical and sonic, musical composition and sonic sculpture um, that is unprecedented in human culture. I mean, yeah. it's that new. Yeah. Like, we, we couldn't do that with any sound, let no. alone musical sound, until the 19, late 1950s. Yeah. Really, because that's in Les Paul, nineteen fifty six, fifty eight, right? It's when I'm somewhere thinking. around there. Those, those great. Uh, he and his wife did those great recordings with like you know twelve guitar parts or whatever. Yeah, there's it, and, it's it's super cool. Uh, it was uh, matic- it's, it's, it's mind blowing to realize because no one had thought of that before. Of course, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is the first one to do it. Thank you. 
think so. I think that is a sea change that cha- changed our relationship with music. And that's so uh, what we're not even seventy years, so not even just over half a century into that. So certainly, in a larger sense, we haven't really gotten any perspective on that. That like paradigm that, shift. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I have an overused phrase that would be appropriately used at this point. A paradigm shift that really alters the fundamental nature of the medium. Mm -hmm. It's not a change in practice. It's not a change in taste. It's not a change in social political motivations. It's a a change in conceptualization. and, And it's a change. It's such a fundamental change in means, in the tools we have available that because Music's moved into the realm where you can manipulate it physically, where you can edit it, where you can do all the things that that you just described. Um, It's a different kind of medium now. And most of our structures, like educational perspectives and curricula completely ignore this aspect of it have not reconciled themselves i was going to be a little more generous and say have not reconciled themselves to the fundamental nature of this change yeah and so that's why i think in the podcast we keep coming back around to these kinds of topics i mean that that's something that's at the core of the loose filter mission if you read the about page on the website that's literally how it's framed there's Mm -hmm. a gap between the world of recorded music and the world of you know live music making concert music making that we need, we all need to be thinking about maybe a little more directly. Yeah, I think what I found um, on the, the the classical music side, the high art, complex music, live, the conservatory music, folk. Yeah, yeah, the conservatory folk. They're not. We're not. I'm one of. Are not wrong to love the music that we love. No, but there is such a sort of knee jerk dismissal of popular music because of its technical simplicity it's cheating in terms of chords and melodies the things that matter if you're creating composed live music but what i know i personally was mostly deaf to until i was in my late 20s and i took a class uh with a guy when i was in grad school with a guy named alvin zach uh and he's got a great book on this called the poetics of rock that i recommend tremendously to anybody who's interested in this and he did what you, the point you just made. When you can, can put music onto tape and then manipulate it after the fact, you've created, number one, a new kind of composition, and you've changed the medium. It's a new kind of medium yeah. at that point. And so his class basically just taught us, you know, like, like how producers do, like how that works and what the components yeah. of it are. But for me, the real epiphany was learning to hear it. I'd literally kind of been deaf to that stuff because yeah. nobody had ever taught me to, most people don't really think about production when they listen to recordings, but that's where so much of the complexity and artistry of pop music, it's not like the song is supposed to be straightforward. It's yeah. meant to appeal to lots of people. If you listen just another level down, there's a lot more going on there. If you understand that putting a thing onto a record, making a recording is its own compositional process. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I wish that my field institutionally would recognize that more uh, forthrightly and quickly. <laughs> I, I, th- I think it will. I don't think That's it has a quickly. choice, <laughs> yeah, right. actually. But just to underscore the nature of how even specialists, even really brilliant musical specialists, kind of haven't considered how fundamental the last half century has been in terms of recreating what the medium of sound and music yeah. is. There's, um, I guess, there's sort of a, an intellectual elitism that views this kind of stuff as stupid, <laughs> or, or perhaps just Like not. Rec- pop popular music in general? 
like that production and producing and recording and all these things that we think about when we're when we're making popular music aren't intellectual practices in the same way that you know writing there's, writing down there notes. There's definitely a prejudice and that, and that it's assumes just, it, that. Yes. It sucks because it's like no, there's so much because to it's think wrong. About. Yeah, it, it sucks this because is it's such wrong. an intellectual practice, yes. and it's it's a it's a whole new aspect of music that we should all learn and is rewarding to uh, to have in your head and when you listen to things. You know? Absolutely, I you know I mean I'm a, a a conductor in terms of my musical my main musical performance mode, and and that's something that certainly. You have to have very keen, uh, you know, oral acuity uh, mm-hmm. uh, to do well, uh, and so my ears, just in the normal course of my work, are stretched and, and challenged quite often, and I have to, you know, have good, really good listening skills. Yeah, uh, not in the sense of meaning, but literally, like understanding the sound I'm hearing and knowing, you know, how to react to it. And I find that when I work as producer on recordings. That my ears are just as challenged. Yeah. Differently stretched, but the uh, the acuity, the the attention, the thoughtfulness, the aesthetic judgments that you have to make about the sounds, it's all of a piece. It's the same kind and of it, stuff. And it requires even more precision in your thinking, too, because... You really have yeah. to... It's very finely grained, because it's going on a recording. And so you really do have to obsess over... Every and I know this is why I know one of you know my 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 guru one of my conducting teachers has not re- never recorded much through his career because he hated the process he found it unmusical he is absolutely a live music part he wants the people in the room he wants to share the experience with them uh, and so that process of really having to go over everything so minutely and make sure that you have every little bit on that recording appear the way you want it to because it's forever once you put it out there um he hated and so he just wouldn't do it and i I just love stuff like that i love any anytime i can like tweak everything down to a ridiculous level you know i i I get a kick out of it yeah there is i will say i understand a lot of the criticism and and worry fear frankly that comes from the concert music side because i don't think it's correct in my estimation but i think i understand where it comes from it's it's a fear with a foundation and it's a a a fear of losing the primacy of the live musical experience there has been and and this is where i think a lot of it came from it didn't necessarily come from a value judgment about that music simple and stupid Mm -hmm. it was more i mean there are plenty of classical musicians who recognized that like you know when schubert and schumann were writing leader and they they were writing i mean they were art songs but they were songs that a lot of people heard and played and sung in their living rooms and things and and it, it came from a fear that if people because of the accessibility the ease and accessibility of recordings because of the casualness and informality of the home listening experience or the bar or the club or whatever that people wouldn't go or would stop going to hear music and to pay for music live well and that was a totally justified fair fear and they were right um. <laughs> well actually uh the data tells us that's not a justified fear this is something i learned in my research a few years ago on this topic that people still go to live performing arts events and museums and th- in lar- in larger numbers than they ever have. No, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's not true. But what I am saying is that 
there are fewer people employed as professional musicians. That did cause huge job losses. Yes. And that and, and so I think yes, the fear so that, was justified. Yes. A lot of those people lost their jobs. I see what you're saying. Yes. I was talking for, I wasn't talking from a practical perspective. I was talking <laughs> from a more like uh, philosophical or aesthetic perspective. But I think number one, uh, I guess my point was that people still go hear live music. So people, oh, no, I'm, people I'm not still they don't, recognize but, the value and the difference but between fewer people live are music. employed as live musicians. But number two, yeah. yes, you're right. And that and that hostility has manifested unfortunately as um uh judgment negative judgment or dismissal of the music itself mm -hmm. and the practices itself which is unfortunate but you know you and i've had this conversation that music was the canary in the coal mine in terms of automation and industrialization because musicians started losing jobs back after world war one yeah in the early 1920s when you started getting movies they used to you know and and they added sound to films and 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 so forth uh, i guess we should have been we should have been paying attention to our artists when they started <laughs> losing jobs hugely in the early part of the century it's that's how the rest of the things went but yeah you're right and so it comes from this kind of soup and and you know i mean i am critical of that perspective but i'm not critical in the sense that i want to blame or disparage anybody who has that point of view because i understand why and i think like you said there are legitimate reasons to have it yeah i guess the whole reason that i pointed out and talk about it is that it's just unfortunate that we're at this point today where there is this big gap between i, I think that the gap two musical has no practices. choice there's no way that that gap doesn't disappear at some point right yes and, and no that's way. and that's why we're having this conversation yeah. make this podcast why we have this website closing the gap to try to contribute <laughs> to that effort right to close that gap because because the the various practices have so much i mean every time we see art commingle culture commingle we're all richer as a result you know the 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 new ideas that bounce off of each other and the new ways of thinking and the new kinds of ways of of being make even more interesting art newer and more interesting art so i just don't i don't come from a place where i'm afraid or i think either tradition is going to lose The last thing I want to add as far as capture goes is digital technology, which um, is fairly recent in terms of it's like we're looking at like 20 years of, of it being really widespread. And I think the big change that creates is it, it uh, lowers the barriers to entry by a lot. Once you start to be able to like anybody as, we're doing this on a, on a laptop right now this costs like what a thousand dollars for us for to, all the yeah like, like all the we are not in yeah. a studio first of all we are one. in a kitchen <laughs> we're we're in a kitchen no we're in a dining we're at the dining room table right now but yeah it, the the barrier to, to entry is much lower uh you can start i mean of course there are some things that don't get cheaper like these microphones are analog they're going to cost the same they're not going right. to get cheaper by, by that but Overall, what you as far as like being able to finally polish a product and and of course the editing becomes completely nonlinear at this point, which opens you up to so much more because you don't have to splice tape anymore. Right, it goes from weeks and months to 
days and hours yeah. of work. And and the, sometimes it's, minutes. It's all non-destructive too. So you're you can experiment more. No, I mean like true. you can you can play around. You can try something because it's not permanent. You can you still have that previous state forever. Whereas of, the, of because we've turned the sound yeah. now not just into signal but information. Yeah. And once it's information, you can. Yeah, we 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 were able to edit the signals, but that was destructive. And now we have and and linear. And now and now we it's it's non-destructive, non-linear. And I think that has changed. Um, you hear production techniques that you wouldn't have heard before, and it's not just because the digital technology enabled us to make those noises, but also it like sort of freed us up to experiment a lot more and a lot more easily, a lot more quickly. And it has, I mean, not just produce, like for instance, this episode that right now, not just produce it, but distribute it globally at the yeah. click of a button. I mean, um, and it's, it's uh, I've often said, and I often bring up in music education circles, you know, if I'm trying to like, like there's a, if I'm teaching say middle school and there's a kid in my school who's bright and, you know, I've encountered and seems kind of talented and I'm recruiting kids into my whatever program, orchestra, band, choir. Uh, but let's say, you know, my, my band, my, and I want this kid to play in the band. And this kid has, um, a computer at home that has some audio software on it. He can sit at, he or she can sit at home and, make all kinds of sounds first of all i mean a near infinite variety of sounds mm -hmm. can easily manipulate them in this vast variety of ways and can create total projects on their own pieces of music whatever they want to do and i'm trying to convince them to come sit in a room and pick up a machine that's going to take them years of really dull kind of unrewarding process to be able to manipulate well and then and then okay so let's say you attain this basic proficiency after a few years you're still just kind of a cog because you got to sit in this ensemble with dozens of other folks and then you all got to follow these instructions and make this thing it's amazing it's wonderful and and the experience of it is thrilling yeah you know, i don't mean to say a cog to diminish it but you are part of a whole yeah, you know, and you're just doing your part. Being a cop is a rewarding experience yeah. that we all do every day. Right, <laughs> and, and there's so much that kids learn and so forth. So I don't mean to diminish at all the value of that context. My point is, though, from that kid's perspective, that's a pretty hard sell. Yeah. <laughs> when she can just go home and put some changes into the, you know, the MIDI keyboard in GarageBand and plug in her little USB mic or he can just, you know, plug in his, not to gender stereotype instruments, but they can just kind of make their own stuff. Their friend can come over. We could make some beats and try to do whatever with I, anything. Yeah. I just think that it's it's year after year, it becomes increasingly an absurd proposition to look at the tools and modes of musicking that are out there in the culture and try to get kids to convince kids that schools in this anachronistic mode will be a valuable experience. It will be. Yeah. I believe in what music education offers. I'm a music educator. But like you said, at some point, this cell will become impossible and we'll have to figure it out. I'd just like to get ahead of the curve.
one last thing I think is worth remarking on is the commodification of music. Yeah. And that's something that um, as, as a young, young Turk, I was really fiery about and wrote a lot about and talked a lot about. And because with this technology for the first time, because we moved music into the physical space, made an object out of it, a, mm-hmm. a record or a tape or a compact disc, a recording is a, you know, a thing, it, it became a commodity. And so there arose this whole industry that profited off of that commoditization, often in ways that left the actual artist impoverished or, or certainly not receiving their fair share of, of the revenue that was generated. And in the last 20 years, since I've sort of been really aware of that and how damaging commodification has been to the art form, popularly especially in a lot of ways, it's been fascinating to see it all come toppling down. Terrifying, well. terrifying. Because the models, the ways that musicians used to make livings after the, you know, die off in the early part of the 20th century, recreating jobs as recording artists and so forth, to see those collapses is scary and difficult. But what has also collapsed is, is, is a whole giant multi-billion dollar industry that made that money by not contributing much creatively. Well, I may offer some sympathy for a devil for a moment. Sure. I, I'm not sure if the commodification of music was all bad. I actually think that the, the commodification of music and the record companies, although we, we often like say the artist gets 12 cents per album, I think it was still a better deal than we're offering them now, which is no cents per album. <laughs> I, yes. And point zero 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 one three cents for a play on Spotify. And so that's why I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to imply that record companies and record stores were evil and they were just taking money from artists and so forth. Uh, even though a lot of times they were abusive of their position and their yeah. their access to listeners, to audience that they offered, they, they did abuse that, certainly. What I meant to say is that creatively, not thinking about it in the marketplace or in terms of earning a livelihood, but in a more pure philosophical sense, that the negative effects I talked about that commodification had was a narrowing of musical style, and creative expression. And I, I think there's an argument for that, but I think there's also an argument that it, it actually funded a lot of interesting stuff that we never would have heard otherwise. It did enable a lot of people to make a living and not have to have other jobs and focus on music. If the barriers to entry for recording were still as high as they are now, but we still had the same kind of you, it, almost impossible to make money off of album sales, we would have lost a lot of stuff. And I think the commodification actually did bring some stuff to our ears that we would have lost otherwise. Well, and certainly now the wide commodification of music technology has had the exact opposite effect. Like we were just talking about, because this gear here, we could create a lot of things Yeah, just with the gear we have sitting on this table. And our our, our ability to transmit it is the the barrier. Unprecedented in human history. Yeah. And so that, and that was always the big stumbling block to any musician who sort of wanted to go it alone in the era of recording technology is that you didn't have access to a broadcaster distribution network. Yeah, and now everybody does. And now everybody does. And and so as our final capstone technology, most important music technology, maybe it's the internet. As far as transmission goes, yeah, that's the, that's the one. <laughs> well, and how it's changed our cultural behavior, though, because I think a lot more people are making music than have in a long time, mm-hmm. a long, long time. You know, one of my things about, we mentioned, I, I think we talked about this in the, beginning of the conversation about notation is that um it it is it did create a barrier to entry a little bit 
to musicking. Mm-hmm. We've gone through a thing where music, with recording technology, it became the domain of specialists. And like you said, it gave us a lot of music we wouldn't have had otherwise. But it also meant that for most people, making music became about pushing buttons. And yeah. so they didn't make music themselves. I think you lose a lot. But I think that that is actually, we're, we're, we're coming out of that in a really intriguing way because so many people can make music without having to learn formal notation. Mm-hmm. They can just make the sounds and work with the sounds directly. But that's, all, that's about as hard as learning notation, though. Learning how to do all that stuff, it requires except, as much... Uh, except it's the... an easier process, I think, because you get product out of it right away. That is true. And so it's it's there's much more of an incentive because you can hear progress. You can hear results. You mm-hmm. can you know, you know you can make a piece of music however crummy it is, whereas when I'm learning my violin, uh, it's it's And different. you're making durable goods where instead of just events you know in the air. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and so I think we have a lot more musical activity. Higher dopamine response to that, <laughs> so you learn faster. Yeah, Exactly. Okay, And Fair so enough. I think we have a lot more musicking happening than we ever have before. I think we have a lot more sharing of that. And I think we have, obviously, far more cross-cultural pollination in terms of creative ideas than the human race has ever experienced. And it's popping up in our music. Like you said, music's syncretic. It's sucking all that stuff in, man, and it's showing up right away. Right away, the weirdest things become global sensations now. Weird, it's weird to my late 20th century sensibility. Yeah. Weird, I should say, because I grew up with my local record store being the only place. I mean, we didn't even have like Tower Records. That was like when I was a teenager. You know, it was the Raccoon Records, it was called the local record store. And whatever they had on the shelf was what I had to choose from. Uh, I can't imagine being 15 now and having, you know. I can't imagine being 15 now for so many reasons. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> rain some stay dry and others feel the pain chocolate rain a baby born will die before this in chocolate rain the school books say it can't be here again chocolate rain so yeah okay so we've, we've covered our our capture our transmission um go back in time once again so we could make analog signals we could make electricity into sound so people started thinking, what if we just made electricity that was never a sound before? Um, <laughs> we'll just make an electrical signal and plug that into an amplifier. So you've got instruments like the electric guitar, um, you know, using electronic pickups, electric pianos. So these early electric me- mechanical instruments and uh, the Hammond organ. And then, of course, you get to the Nova Chord, which is the first real synthesizer, I would say. So we got all these new instruments basically out of this. And before we even go into synthesis, just like new instruments changed the band, I think, or what will be the groups, the ensembles that we listen to. Because like before you had electronically amplified musical instruments, you want to you want a dance hall. You gotta hire fifty people to play, to play uh, acoustical instruments, right? To listen to, even though even though they could play for like you know seven hundred people, yeah, <laughs> you had to have that many people. You had to have a grip of people. They were just amplifying, and sound. and yeah. once you got electronic instruments that could all be amplified, and so every every sound you hear, so it's not just mic'd, but it's like you're creating electronic sound, and of course. Now you can add effects right into it. That changed the ensemble we use. Uh, like we, we went from ensembles that we listened to primarily being groups of like 30 to 100 people yeah. to like five. 
Right, right, and, right. And I think that's a big change. And that happened right in mid-century, 40s yeah. and 50s. Yeah. Um, and I think that was enabled by just having instruments that could fill such a role. Like a, a, an electric guitar can, you know, produce uh, the same kind of sound that, like, used to require 40 people, you know, to make that kind of harmonic diversity. Um, just well, and you see the, the influence. And, and how much volume it makes. Like in mid-century jazz, going from, from big band to bebop, like yeah. they're, they're, they're paying attention to the same even though they're not using the electronic instruments, like even a, uh, an electric guitar or, or something like that, even though they're still just have mics on acoustic instruments usually for yeah. your typical jazz combo, they realized they only needed five or six. They didn't need a big band. You know, yeah. if, they, if they're just like five of us, then, then and of course that lets your solos be a lot more complex and so forth and all the ideas that we got out of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it just became a, like the standard popular song format it's like now it requires five people and of course and the people who pay musicians love that yeah. so they they want to hire all the small band that's who gets yeah. the gigs and uh, it's cheaper to pay five guys than 30 yeah so that's a big change but then also when you talk about i, I mentioned the nova chord and that that's the the earliest true synthesizer where it's like you could actually design your timbre that is the big change that um that in in production that's the, that's the biggest one i can think of really is because before we had instruments that you, you built in and and they have a timbre and you can you can change it a little bit by your technique but you aren't just like ground up making a sound thinking about that that's changed <laughs> that changed how we listen to music forever it, yeah and it also because it's an electronic source for the sound signal you can manipulate it in an infinite number of ways mm -hmm. also uh, not just its timbre, but any property of that sound is—it's all manipulable. Mm -hmm. Which, where if you're just recording or amplifying a an, an, uh, physical mechanical instrument, yeah, you can't do that. So now timbre is like one of the aspects of music we think about, not in just like selecting, but actually constructing. We can use timbre as the primary source of interest. You know, the the thing that grabs you doesn't need to be just the notes or or the expression. It's actually like the sounds. I kind of feel like. All of these things together, like like our new recording techniques, our new sound production techniques, our new transmission techniques, my 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 pet non-falsifiable hypothesis is that all of this actually revealed to us how much uh, fertile ground is left in the diatonic system. I think that's the that's that's one of the biggest changes. That's like all of the stuff together. Look what we went back to. Like look look where um, as tonally we were writing making music, and we've gone back to so much a. a diatonic harmony and you can do so much interesting stuff with that now and it's stuff that and it's 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 harmonic and melodic material that people react to you know and it's not difficult you so know? it's it's all so okay so if i draw it you're thinking that that would imply that that would imply that composers for instance coming out of the classical era started experimenting and using more and more complex harmonic uh, you know, uh, I mean, chords and harmonic notes, notes, progressions notes. and yes. structures, because that was the technology that was available to them. That's what where you could create interest and create That's novelty. Where they could, yeah, and 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 more, you know, complexity and subtlety and things like that. But as soon as we got the tools that let us have more complexity and subtlety and things about timbre and space, and we immediately went back to a much more straightforward vocabulary. Yes, and structure. Yeah. An architecture to the musical ideas. Yeah. I think that, that we no longer need to rely simply on 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 rhythm and and uh, and pitch as our primary source of novelty and interest. So an academic perspective that values 
that kind of information complexity in the composition itself mm-hmm. doesn't recognize that its value comes from practical choices, not aesthetic merit. It needs to recognize that its value, it assumes that it's from aesthetic merit, but the practice did not arise, the practice arose out of very, very practical, mechanical, realistic reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think when you realize where the value came from, which follows the practice, that's where that part of the musical world, I would say, is maybe wrongheaded. Because it doesn't recognize the the source of its value. Killer. Yeah. So, to conclude, <laughs> it's, it's it kind of endless to think about, right? And so, so much of our musicking, the music that we make, our behavior, how we listen to it, what we like, why we like it, how we share it, why we share it, where we share it, uh, is because uh, a lot of those choices come out of simply the choices we have yeah. on the table, what we can do, not what we would want to do, but what we're able to do. And it's funny how you lose sight of that further down the line and you sort of reverse engineer it as a, a, a choice that was anything other than practical. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of patently ridiculous when you think about it for more than you know, 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so uh, it is It is fascinating to me the, the point of cultural uh, kind of evolution we're in with regard to that, with music as a medium. I think, I mean, I, I think... Of course, I would think this because I'm alive now, but I don't know that there's been a more exciting time in human history to be a musician and to be someone thinking about these things because it's changing and has changed so profoundly mm-hmm. and is going to keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's like like we, it's not like we did. Whoa, that was a big change. Now let's deal with the aftermath. We're still in it. Like we're we're our lives. Our lifespans are just in the middle chapters of this. Yeah. Uh, sea change of, of 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 what's happened in this medium and the culture. So, yeah, good and topic. There's, there's so many new toys to to, to play with and learn <laughs> and and expand our our voices with. And who knows what kind of ideas are going to come out of that? Right on. All right, this is good. This, this is good. good. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>